Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Brigupati Singh. He's an assistant professor of anthropology at Brown University and winner of the AAR Book Award in Analytical Descriptive Studies. He's here to speak to us about his wonderful book, Poverty and the Quest for Life, Spiritual and Material Striving in Rural India, which was published with University of Chicago Press. Congratulations, Brigu, and thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Christian. Thank you uh, for this conversation and the opportunity to share my thoughts about this book. Um, so, so yeah, it's uh, very exciting to be able to speak to a wider audience within religious studies and the American Academy of Religion. Yeah. The book is super fascinating. It's wonderfully written in a style that I think a lot of people will, will benefit from. Can you start by taking us into the project as it emerged? Where did this project begin for you, and what were some of the, the broader conceptual interventions you you were thinking about making with the book? Yeah, no, actually, um, thank you. I, 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 I'll say a little bit about what was a kind of surprising emergence of a set of themes within my book, but I mean, it's also the case I want, I mean, not only thank you, but also in the context of this award, thank the American Academy of Religion, in some senses, if you're writing about the non-West and about sort of uh, what sometimes is called con context distant spaces, or uh, you're supposed to, in a way, write in a particular way or announce yourself as a kind of either you have to be a wounded subjectivity of a particular sort, particularly if you're writing from post-colonial context, or you have to announce yourself as a kind of post-colonial disruption of a kind of more European universal set of norms or arguments and the book does neither of those so in that sense I was really I've been very uh, pleasantly surprised and delighted by the fact that people read it so generously uh, and that the uh, the jury in the American Academy of Religion recognized and is sympathetic to what I'm trying to do which is in some ways stretch the boundaries of what we mean by religion uh, or what we would take technically to be the study of religion because in some senses this question you ask of how did this project emerge it began for me in some ways as a completely secular quote-unquote study of a particular kind of habitat of uh, uh, in a space and environment that was being kind of um, that was um, had all kinds of environmental problems water shortage food scarcity it began as an investigation into a specific community, the Seherias, who are a community of former bonded laborers, and asking what in some ways is a very broad question, which is that in a milieu like this, how do we imagine what the idea of quality of life means? And what do people understand as a quote-unquote higher quality of life? Uh, so it began in a way as a study that wouldn't just... Um, strike us immediately as a study or as a question for religious studies but as I worked through specific issues each of them it, I realized became for me uh, uh, and what I call spiritual and material striving and each question however seemingly material for example most obviously the opening sets of issues in the book food which is a central issue for any uh, scholar both of poverty but also uh, interestingly of Hinduism and not only of Hinduism, then we might ask more broadly that food, is it a secular question or is it a religious or a spiritual question? Or similarly, if we were to ask what constitutes a higher quality of life or a better quality of life, 
then if we don't simply take a kind of economic definition for granted, uh, which I engage quite closely, I engage scholars like Amartya Sen and like economists who've tried to think about this question, sometimes in quite rich ways. Uh, but the moment we come to the idea of how do we understand a higher quality of life, uh, then again, for me, it becomes an interesting question that is it purely a secular question uh, or similarly, I'm referring to another set of issues in the book that how do we conceive of sovereignty or notions of justice? Uh, is that again, is that entirely a secular question? So what happens in the course of the book is a kind of, in a way, uh, a really redefinition of the domain where religion, uh, where does it begin and where does it end? Uh, I'm kind of trying to pose uh, a different set of issues, which is not only to say that uh, there are secular problems with spiritual answers, but equally, as I say, that uh, the gods in this landscape that I encountered, there's a line early on where I say the gods let me led me not to distant heavens, but closer to this earth. Uh, and then gradually over the course of the book, you begin to see a set of concepts uh, through which one can think about movements between what I'm calling different thresholds, concepts of life, uh, ways of relating to um, ideas of neighborliness or how we conceive of what neighbors us, um, sacrifice, which for me is absolutely central concept throughout the book, and sovereignty. So I can speak more about this later, but these only emerged through a kind of process of writing. So the first thing I'll sort of offer you is that it began as a, in a way, a study of material life and of uh, poverty and quality of life and gradually became more and more embedded also in a kind of what I call a fluctuation between the spiritual and the material or uh, not to dissolve the difference entirely but kind of like the famous Wittgenstein's duck rabbit image where suddenly you look at it from one angle and it's a completely um, religious or spiritual uh, issue and at the same time is a very pressing material concern. So in some ways that, that was the opening set of surprises for me in both in inhabiting a space like this and in writing, uh, which was to realize that religion is a lot more than say only if we were to demarcate it as the study of particular kinds of texts or ritual. Your field, you look at a particular community, the Seharias in a place called Shahabad. Can you offer us a, a brief sketch of the social landscape and, and let us know what we should know about this community in order to understand your project a little better? Yeah, thank you. So, Seheriyas are um, part of what in India would be officially classified as a scheduled tribe or in, so I go into the legal and governmental definitions of these terms quite a bit because actually as soon as you pause over them, you realize how slippery they are, even a term like tribe in, in South Asia in particular is quite a kind of debatable term, how the term tribe came about when the word is basically jati. So Seheriyas are initially, I had gone to this area because it was uh, a lot of activist friends of mine had been involved in a process of political and sort of, of litigation around a set of starvation deaths that had occurred in this area. Um, in the course of a drought. Uh, so that's how I first heard about the area. The Seheriyas as all kinds of government statistics and all kinds of um, World Bank documents, etc. will tell you are one of the poorest communities in India. Uh, and indeed the infant mortality levels and uh, literacy levels are really, really alarmingly low in some ways. Uh, but in the process of living there uh, for a longer period of time, uh, for some in some ways the research process for me became a way of learning how they are not in some ways 
uh, as remote as they seem. At the end of the book, I say that this is as modern or contemporary an area as had I written an ethnography of New York or San Francisco. Um, and some of the questions that I face uh, or that the Seherias face are not so different from what people would face anywhere else in the world. Specifically about the milieu, the uh, Seherias are embedded in a set of inter-social or inter-caste, inter-tribe relations that I was interested in. So I'm equally interested in their neighboring communities and how, say, higher status communities treat them and what hierarchy, inequality, exploitation, what do these things mean at a everyday level and at a so-called theological level. Uh, so in a way, then step two in inhabiting the book is to realize that this is both a study of a specific community, but of sets of issues of, say, how neighboring groups relate to each other or how one understands in the context of South Asia caste inequality. Uh, but similarly, this um, scholars in many other parts of the world have also said how much they are struck by the sets of questions that one could uh, kind of feel embodied in a way that you can find in many different parts of the world. Uh, but but yeah, so the first thing to understand is it's a context of poverty and I'm understanding a particular habitat in a way because in this book the Seherias are equally importantly for me living in a particular kind of habitat uh, and now of course it's become kind of almost sexy to refer to the non-human and to speak of um, nature and in a particular way but I hadn't necessarily intended this to be part of any theoretical turn, say the ontological turn or um, particular kinds of theoretical excitements that are going on in different fields. But it very much does that, that it's trying to show you how trees are as important uh, to this landscape, how water is as important, uh, how uh, in a way the quality of the soil also impacts what, what we live, how we live, including also of course how what we eat and the impact that has on the water table. So in some ways, it's a book about the Seherias, uh, but it's also about their relationship with their neighbors. And it's also about what neighbors us, which may be a lot of mm, non-human elements and entities as well. Uh, and beyond that, in a way, how one understands what this specific set of relations conveys um, more broadly in other parts of the world as well. So that's uh, a little bit, I guess, about Seherias. Now, much of what you're doing in these kind of intersecting fields of social, political, domestic spaces is looking at local religious life and practices. And I think this might be uh, one of the key aspects for AAR members uh, in terms of what is the challenge of studying religion. And for many, these types of questions or the way they're framed often arise from interpretive assumptions or norms. And you, I think, do a, a really good job of kind of thinking about this in, in new and dynamic ways. So how do, how do you attempt to disrupt this religion-secularity dichotomy? And what kinds of vocabularies do you try to develop and put into practice in order to examine the boundaries of this dichotomy? Yeah, thank you. Um, that actually is, like I said, it began almost as an ethnographic imperative, which is to think about the quality of life. I realized one would need to think about uh, a range of issues which uh, enter into the domain we would call the realm of spirits or the spiritual or the theological, all of which have slightly different valences. But a crucial part of it was also for me, uh, my own training has been in at the intersection of anthropology and philosophy. Uh, and uh, it, so in a way, responding to debates within philosophy or 
continental philosophy in particular or so called theory although i don't really like the word theory uh, has been as important to me and one of the debates that was very much on my mind as i wrote this book was the sort of debate on religion and secularism uh, and how one for me doesn't dissolve the dichotomy because some ways in a place like india particularly with the rise of something like the hindu right uh, in some debates it's quite important to uh, be able to contest um, ideas of hinduism and ideas of say a hindu nation uh, that right wing groups are proposing uh, but at the same time it isn't uh, to say that here is religion and here is secularism so in some ways for me crucially it's not uh, the dichotomy is in some senses dissolved and i'm proposing a set of concepts through which that dissolution might take place but what is happening is that it's not in the sense either a post secular synthesis as some theorists or philosophers including one of the people um i mean there were many people who had been in my mind whom i take to be either teachers someone like hent devries who was one of my members of my dissertation committee or william connolly the political theorist uh who's uh, written famous sets of political theory books on critiques of secularism but what i'm aiming at is not a post secular synthesis because what i'm showing in some ways is there's a difference even within certain within a religion the differences are as important as between them uh and similarly unlike a set of debates that around charles taylor's secular age etc had emerged i'm not proposing it isn't that there is some kind of disenchantment or that there's or religion is the domain of transcendence while secularism is the domain of imminence or of buffered selves or whatever because i'm showing how or arguing that secular nationalism so called also participates in logics very much of what i'm calling transcendence so then if you accept that as many people might that secular nationalism very much participates in logics of transcendence uh, then what are the domains or the ways in which we can analyze these forms of overlap and for that i provide a relatively specific set of concepts that are allow, that are in some ways grow across different chapters and then attain a kind of i try to to some extent systematize it in the conclusion uh, something like sacrifice for example sacrifice which is central to the most public national cults and is also central to the most intimate domestic rituals uh, it's also something on which there's a classic sort of body of literature within anthropology which i'm responding to uh, but it's also something that figures quite centrally in ethical dilemmas in the kinds of people i was writing about or the kinds of uh, ritual forms or contestations i was encountering so what happens in the book is that a set of four kind of concepts emerge um which are around sacrifice around sovereignty uh, around questions of the neighbor and neighborliness and lastly kind of subplot throughout the book which is concepts of life or our relation to non-humans or the ways in which we imagine what life is where it ends what the place relation of the dead to the living is uh, so these are some of the concepts i offer in which uh, it's it isn't a dissolution or a synthesis of religion secularism there are people within india who equally kind of famously ashish nandi who is a very close colleague and inter- interlocutor for many years in india had has has written famously a post uh, an anti secularist manifesto but what i am suggesting is not an anti secularist manifesto but in some ways i think something slightly more radical if i may be narcissistic enough to suggest that which is that it's a set of concepts through which one can understand differences internal to religion one can understand the ways in which secular moralities or 
statecraft may play off those same sets of uh, sort of what Durkheim would describe as elementary concepts or what Levi-Strauss would also, and in which the disruption is also far-reaching in that at the end I also problematize or say that what is really then the difference between theology and theory uh, or how might we imagine theory also with its root word theoria, uh, which is a kind of transcendence or a view from afar uh, or God's eye view as also participating in certain kinds of logics of transcendence uh, and which is not to say that transcendence is opposed to imminence and that theology is about transcendence, theory is about imminence. Instead, I'm suggesting the ways in which we might imagine degrees and modes of transcendence. So in a way, I guess the long answer, the short answer to your question, <laughs> or the summary would be that I'm suggesting a set of reasonably rigorous concepts through which we understand differences internal to religion and secularism uh, and understand in some ways the conflict more specifically rather than saying here is modernity, here is tradition or here is the claim on the modernity of religion which for me is equally a spurious kind of juxtaposition. Now, in the book, obviously, as an anthropologist, this ethnography is extremely detailed. It's lyrical in many ways. It's going basically all over in terms of thinking about this local space, social, political, and religious practices, which we can't really get into in our conversation here. So uh, readers will have to, to read it for that. But how do you imagine that others in the study of religion might benefit from your work through some of the, the case studies you've worked through or some of the analytical vocabulary you provided? What, what do you think they might take away? Thank you. And uh, really this in the conversation and the, the prize has been really a kind of really nice opportunity through which to reach out, uh, which is quite difficult to do because sometimes, you know, our academic worlds are so bound by are, uh, by immediacies and the stuff we think we have to read or people are, who are our immediate interlocutors that it's really a privilege to be able to just say this out loud and in public um, without, like I'm saying, without having to um, embody a certain kind of post-colonial identity which I really in some ways don't identify with a previous generation or a earlier way of uh, embodying post-coloniality. So the kind of in a way, big picture take-home message, I would say, uh, that I hope to convey at some level for people interested specifically in the study of what we would traditionally define as religion. Say somebody, you know, working on a set of texts in a different century than mine or somebody working in a radically different area of the world or with a form of religious life that's very different from what I'm outlining in this book. What would it mean to them? And to them, I would say that this is, if I may kind of say it boldly, it is steps towards a kind of comparative conceptual vocabulary that is begins beyond a critique of Eurocentrism. And and so we know the certain kind of post-colonial disruption of the European universal or of claims to universality, uh, or famously say Masuzawa's critique of the category of world religions, or really a range of scholars from within anthropology like Talal Asad. Uh, although Talal Asad is suggesting a set of comparative concepts in a way, but what I'm trying to do is suggest that what might comparative religion look like um, for us in this day and age uh, without necessarily looking for sameness, that, oh, I have to find this and it will be the same 
across other traditions and without necessarily dissolving it into irreconcilable differences which is to say that we are just merely studying locals and particulars and there is no way to move beyond our own specificities uh, or that the specifics only become global when we come to something like nationalism or when we come to something obviously linked to power uh, and to statecraft and to state power uh, because those are the ways in which we understand um, sort of movement across say contexts so in some ways the vocabulary that i set out is again it is um through a set of terms which in some ways would be recognizable as quite canonical to the study of religion already uh, so that and that for me is actually a source of um, abundance in a way that we have a set of vocabularies uh, with which to think that for example throughout my book one major theme is or a text that lies in the background of my book is nietzsche's book the genealogy of morals where nietzsche says that ascetic ideals for example were a momentous event which changed the character of the world in an essential way uh, then i'm saying that at the end of the book when i say that what do we imagine modernity to be or when exactly do we think it so called begins or what are its trajectories if it's not only colonialism uh, and i suggest that weber in fact offered a route so it's not a refusal of european thought that i'm offering but i'm saying weber offered one particular way of relating asceticism and capitalism or frugality and morality uh, and if we take ascetic ideals say as one set of comparative concepts then we are not looking at the same thing everywhere but we are looking at a set of conflicts that might equally take place in say buddhism as a, in its arguments with vedic hinduism or vice versa or we might look at a set of conflicts occurring as say peter brown does between ancient christianity and rome or we might look at gandhi's redefinition of asceticism and mm, the political in light of ascetic ideals or we may look at in my book as i'm looking at uh, particular ethical dilemmas that people are facing say in turning vegetarian Uh, so what i'm saying is that all of these if we position ascetic ideals say as one seed and i offer three or four such concepts with which to think comparatively uh then it isn't that what we have is the same and it isn't because the alternative to that or when people say no 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 you have to historicize or contextualize then in the so called dominance of history as historians themselves would argue then you have a very european teleology of say feudalism capitalism neoliberalism so in trying to disrupt that given teleology or you have a particular history of geist or spirit in which a certain kind of modern so called spirit uh, diminishes all others which is what we call disenchantment uh, would be a, a false reading i think of the world and but it's not only enough to say it's false uh, the next question becomes what kinds of ideas can we offer with which to think comparatively within which actually we can think globally but also and that i think is the advantage or the gift of anthropology which is that to think globally doesn't mean to simply abstract oneself from particularity because i'm actually trying to come closer to the phenomena that i'm studying in and closer even than say uh, like one of the chapters if i may mention one specific example on tejaji that is uh, what would be called a quote unquote folk deity within rajasthan uh, i show that and many others have shown that the term folk is just not enough uh, to understand say 
the comparative resonances of uh, this particular set of oral epics that actually extend much further back within the epic corpus itself and also relate to certain themes that one can understand mythologically that epics are playing off each other, that are playing off particular themes or responding to particular moral imperatives. Uh, so, so for me, in studying Tejaji in a particular context, I'm actually coming very close to the sights, the sounds or the smells with which one might understand or inhabit Tejaji in a particular milieu. But at the same time, I'm trying to take us further afield, which is to show that it shouldn't be understood just as Rajasthani folk religion or as, say, Hinduism or, say, as Indian religion. Uh, because the questions that Tejaji poses and the sort of drifts within which this form of deification shifts and rises and falls uh, are actually uh, extend further outwards. And then I try to plot some of the steps by which that those movements might be understood. Uh, and and so in that sense, it is a way of thinking in in what what Nietzsche would call an untimely set of temporalities or rhythms or tempos. Uh, which in some ways is a is a set of possibilities with which one can think about our comparative capacities at present, but also how we come closer to the texts or the worlds that we are studying uh, in as a site of conflict in a way. And for me, the heart of comparison in some senses, uh, one of the things I say in the book is that for me, comparative or comparison is not about finding sameness but is about locating a set of internal tensions. And so each concept or each comparative concept I offer is, is structured around a set of conflicts or tensions where we see the tension also more closely or the conflict more closely. That there's not a tension or not a conflict between religion and secularism. Uh, and it's not a conflict between tradition and modernity, but it may be better understood as the conflict between, say, two modes of transcendence. When I'm describing how... Uh, say, right-wing Hindu groups are trying to um, show how local or um, quote-unquote folk forms of Hinduism are mere superstition, then I'm saying that this is not understood as modern Hinduism versus folk Hinduism. It's better understood as a dispute over the mode of transcendence. And that can be understood equally in the way in which, say, a certain conflict takes place between the Wahhabis and Sufi saintly shrines uh, or at a different uh, point of time or a different epoch uh, in the critique of Catholic saintly shrines that certain kinds of shrines of Protestant writing are offering. So in a way, the comparison is not to say it's the same conflict that's occurring, but which is to say, how do we compare these things uh, in a way that doesn't take, say, a particular idea of modernity or European colonialism as the defining feature of modern life or as the defining feature of world history. So in that sense, I think religion offers us a set of global possibilities but also a way of staying very close to the lives and texts that, that we inhabit and care about. Well, Brigu, your award is surely something that you deserve. You've written a, a wonderful book, and it was a pleasure speaking to you as well. Thank you. Thank you, Christian. Thank you. It was um, Thank you for the opportunity to kind of have this conversation. Mm -hmm.